Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Well, Revelation chapter number 21 this morning, we are going to continue not just studying through this book, but really a study now of new heaven and new earth. We looked at the start of this last week. We'll get it again this week. And then we will even in the next sermon to come get Revelation 22, which is further elaboration on this idea of a new heaven and a new earth and what eternity would look like for believers. And I want to take some of the concepts that were presented in the first nine verses of Revelation, uh, chapter 21, that are now elaborated on in further detail in the back of that chapter and in chapter number 22. So I want us to get a little bit of an introduction and then we'll take these concepts of the new heaven and new earth has a new capital and has a new community and has a new communion with God and we'll begin to understand those in more grave detail. So let's just review quickly by reading the first part of verse 1 of Revelation 21 where John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, right? Eternity is not you on a cloud in a diaper with a harp. That's not eternity. Eternity is not a mystical, transcendental, ethereal place. It is a physical place. It is embodied, right? You get a new body. We saw that in chapter 20. Now there is a new heaven and there is a new earth. Verse number five of the same chapter says, and I, I just love this phrase, he that sat upon the throne, speaking of Father God, said, behold, I make all things new. And how cool is that? Because we are so used to things fading, right? We put the battery in the remote, but then the battery goes dead eventually and we have to replace it. We take the chicken out of the oven and it smells good and we want to eat it, but give it just a small amount of time. Even if you stick it in your refrigerator, it doesn't take long and it begins to decay and it becomes nasty and things begin to fade. You clean your living room, it's spotless, white glove, I mean, it's spotless, but small amount of time and that dust begins to settle and you have to clean it all over again. It doesn't stay that way, right? Our bodies, they begin to decay and betray us. Where we used to feel healthy and young and vibrant, but now all of a sudden, man, my my back hurts and the arthritis and my joints and my eyes are beginning to dim and my ears don't hear as good and my teeth are falling out and your body does this, right? This is what we're used to. This is what's called entropy. The scientific principle that things tend towards disorder and decay. But this here, this is not that. This is God making all things new. And to think about that for a second, that God is characterized by newness even though he's ancient. You say, is God eternal or is God new? He's both. Not new as in he's new in, in, uh, in origin or that he's new in this point in time, but new as in fresh. New as in there's no decay. Right? Think about that. Eternal God is not getting worse off. His back doesn't ache, right? His teeth aren't falling out. His memory isn't slipping. 
That's, that's not eternal God. He's ancient. He is eternal, but he is also new. And listen to this. What this text teaches is that you will be too. And creation will be too. Will be new. Will be, you can maybe think of it as reverse entropy. That instead of tending towards disorder and decay, things are now tending always towards new and fresh and whole and put together and cohesive, that everything makes sense and we don't war with our bodies and we don't war with creation and we don't constantly have to to work to make it pretty or beautiful, but every second things becoming more put together, things new, right? I make all things new. Theologians have argued for years that underneath our desire for new and our attraction to the new, and we are attracted to that, aren't we? To the new car or to the new house or to the new uh, phone or the new thing on the menu. That perhaps underneath of this is a hunger for eternity. That under the new diets and the new cars and the new clothes and the plastic surgeries is what? It's us wanting to get relief from the oldness of this life. It is us craving something new. Perhaps what we really crave is this, the newness of God, a new heaven and a new earth. And I think that this is a truth that just resonates with people because we feel ourselves decay and we see death and we we feel like intuitively that we're not built for that. Like somehow we're built for something more. And you would be right. But this is completely opposite of what secular culture is teaching over and over and over again. Secular culture is teaching that in origins, this is time and chance and there is no rhyme and there is no reason. It just happened to be. And in our future, there's really not a purpose to that either. And that when we're dead, you know, that's it. We're dead. I came across a couple weeks ago this video of one of our nation's leading scientist, a Harvard graduate and astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, explaining his perspective, the scientific perspective, on what is going to be the future. What happens after death? What are you looking forward to, if anything? And I want to play you a clip. It's 60 seconds long of him explaining what would be the common secular mindset on what awaits us post-death. Go ahead, guys. Ben, about... Uh about just what happens after death. What does science say? Because he wants to think of the soul and yes. the soul is preserved. And I said, I'm pretty much all in on the fact that um, I, I want to be buried, not cremated. Because mm-hmm. if you're buried, the energy content of your body, long developed by the flora and fauna that you've eaten your mm-hmm. whole life, if you're buried, that energy content gets returned to the earth. I don't mean that just in a poetic way. Worms will eat, plant tap roots, and you feed flora and fauna the way you have dined upon flora and fauna your whole life. Mm-hmm. And for me, that is the cycle of life. And if you choose instead to be cremated, that's fine. Your energy contents of your body gets released as heat. It heats the air. The air will radiate to space. And your energy then scatters across the universe. For me, both are significant. Both are poetic. All right, so that's, that's the perspective. You catch it? I have received energy from the earth. I will be giving my energy back to the earth. That is the end. That is the cycle of life. And that is beautiful. And that is poetic. And if you think about it for longer than 10 seconds, although he talks very articulately and does his best to make it poetic, think about it for longer than 10 seconds and you know 
that doesn't, that doesn't ring true. We felt young and vibrant when we were 21 and that felt good and now we're not feeling so good anymore and there's something in us that says, I shouldn't feel this way. It doesn't feel natural. We see our loved ones suffering from dementia and there's nothing about us that says, well, this is a cycle of life. This is natural. This is just how it goes. No, it feels weird. We go to a funeral and funerals do not feel like they should belong. We don't know how to grieve. We don't know how to comfort someone when they are grieving. We don't know what to say and our words feel flimsy. And as much as you want to try to cycle of life it and make it seem as though I'm, I'm some drop slipping back into the cosmic ocean, as much as you want to try to do that stuff, we know that death is an enemy and that when we face death, as much as we try to fit it on, it feels like an oversized coat. It just doesn't fit. But when you hear the truth, that there is a new heaven and there is a new earth and there is an eternity and all things will be made new. There's something inside of you that rings like a bell and says, yes, that is exciting. I long for that. There's something in you, in all of us that yearn for that, right? And God says, I have that. I have a new heaven and I have a new earth that awaits you. And listen to the description of this. First he says, this will have a new capital city. The capital city called the New Jerusalem. Verse number nine, here it is. There came to me one of the seven angels that had seven vials full of the seven last plagues. We saw this angel previously. And he talked with me and he said, come here, come hither. I'll show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. So from this Mount Everest vantage point, what shall John see? Well, I was showed a great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Here comes this city. We'll get some dimensions and some descriptions of this city, but he starts by saying this city is filled with this explosive, diffusive, brilliant light. And this light is stemming from God. It is the glory of God. It is what Moses just got a hint of when, when he was shown the glory of God and radiated. This comes and this city glows with light like you've never seen. And we can understand what it's like to look at an Edison bulb and the light that it produces versus an incandescent bulb and the light that it produces versus an LED bulb versus the sun. And we can understand that each of those kind of graduate and how uh, enraptured we feel in the light or in the warmth of it, right? You've never seen or felt anything like this light that is now being emitted through this city, through creation. He says in verse number 12, this city had a great wall, high. It had 12 gates. And at the gates, there were 12 angels and names written thereon. Written on what? Not the angels, the gates. Which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And on the east, there were three gates. And on the north, there were three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, there were three gates. And that will make sense in a minute when you figure out that this city is like a cube. Verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So here are these gates and here are these foundations. 
memorialized, enshrined with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The two groupings of people, more or less, that God has chosen to work through in the course of history to show and to distribute his redemptive purposes that these have their names there. Verse number 15 And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city. This angel has this measuring stick that's golden. And he measured the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And so here's some measurements. The city, it lies four square. The length is as large as the breadth. So that would make sense. It's a square, right? Each side is as long as the other. And he measured the city with a reed. It was 12,000 furlongs. And people debate, is this 12,000 furlongs around the whole perimeter, or is it 12,000 furlongs on each side, and then the other side is 12,000? I don't know for sure. Either way, it's massive, okay? You're like, how long is a furlong? Well, 12,000 furlongs is 1,500 miles, more or less. Bigger than Europe, okay? Like, big. You wrap your head around that. Even if you divided it and said 1,500, you know, made the whole thing, and it's more or less 400 furlongs on each side. I mean, you're, you're talking, or 400 miles on each side. You're talking about a, a massive city. And then he says this, which is cool and trippy all at the same time. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So it's not just square, it's cube. And I mean, we have some tall buildings, right? Skyscrapers. But you go 1,000 feet, I mean, that's, that's crazy. You're, you're talking 1,500 miles high? Like you're in our current system, you're in outer space, right? 400 miles, it's the same thing. Some have speculated, like, does this mean that we're in heaven in the same way that I can walk forward and I can walk backward and I can walk side to side, that I'll be able to walk up? I'll just go up and down? Like I'll be my own elevator? I don't know. I'd like to think so. I don't know. I mean, it's going to be boring if you have to take, like, the, the, the actual elevator all the way up. Like, that's going to take a long... I know you got eternity, but that elevator music would get old, right? <laughs> like, this is, this is huge. When he said that this is, this is big, he wasn't joking. Here comes this city. And this is, this is just one city, by the way. Like, this is the capital city. It would stand to reason, even Jesus kind of intimates as much in in the Gospels, that there's more than one city. This is the capital, though, New Jerusalem. Here's what what he says in verse 17. He measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits. Once again, I know that you don't measure in cubits, but a cubit is roughly 18 inches. It's It's your elbow to the tip of your finger here. He measured it 144 cubits according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. Huh? What he's saying is that we know this measurement a cubit, but the angel measured it. The one who had the rod, he's the one that, that took the measurement. So you're talking 216 feet. You say it's not a very big wall. Well, if, it's, if that's the width, it's a huge wall. If, it's, if that's the height, not that big. But it, doesn't, it never specifies height or width. I presume that we're talking about the width. That's a really thick wall, 216 feet. How tall would that be? I don't know. He said it was real tall. That's all he said. Verse 18, the building of the wall of it, it was of jasper. The city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city, they're garnished with all manner of precious stones. 
The first of the foundation, and here come all the stones, Jasper, the second, Sapphire, the third, Chalcedony, the fourth, an emerald, the fifth, Sardonyx, the sixth, Sardius, the seventh, Chrysolite, the eighth, Beryl, the ninth, Topaz, tenth, Chrysoprasus, eleventh, Jacinth, twelfth, Amethyst. You say, eh, one of those is my birthstone. I like that one. What does that mean to me? Here's what it means. It is dazzling. It is beautiful. Ain't no concrete. (laughs) No way. Made with jewels, gold. To think about how this would radiate, how this would sparkle. I mean, we can't really describe it. We try, but we can't really describe it. I would encourage you sometime this week to maybe jump on even Google and just put in the New Jerusalem and click images. And people have tried to paint and draw what this would look like. And and I'm sure none of their depictions are actually accurate, but it starts to put into your mind's eye something of what this may look like. And there's, there's incredible works of art that try to depict what this could possibly be. And it's just show stopping. I found it interesting as I studied, and I'm not a scientist, was never my favorite subject, but science has figured out something about jewels. We, for many, many, many years, did not have this ability to generate what we would call pure light, to put a filter on light and polarize it, and then even to put another filter on it and cross-polarize the light, and to be able to produce what is called pure light. And they found when we are able to manufacture pure light and we shine that into jewels, that there are two categories of jewels. There are anisotropic jewels and isotropic jewels. Anisotropic jewels are jewels that when you shine pure light into them, no matter what their color is originally, whether they're red or green or blue, when you hit it with pure light, it bursts with all of the colors. And it begins to display patterns that are mesmerizing. Then there are isotropic jewels, which the very opposite happens. In an isotropic jewel, it may look good if you look at it from the outside. Something like a diamond is an isotropic jewel or a ruby. But when you hit this with pure light, it blacks out. Nothing sparkles, nothing dazzles, almost like a dull lump of coal. And scientists now know that all of the stones that are mentioned would be, you guessed it, not isotropic, but anisotropic. Now, how would anyone know that back then? They wouldn't. But God shows these jewels. You say, I I like my diamonds. You wouldn't in the city. God shows these stones that will burst with color, that will shine in ways that we can't even comprehend really. It goes on to say about this city, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. Meaning it's not a gate of like a billion pearls put together, but a massive pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And of course, that gets a lot of press, right? The streets of gold, and I'll be kicking up gold dust and, you know, that sort of stuff. But here is this city. And we don't know all of the city. We're going to see more next uh, chapter 22 when we see that there's trees and rivers and all kinds of things in the city. But here is this new Jerusalem. You say, man, that's, that's interesting. That's fascinating. No, it's more than interesting and fascinating. 
This is not meant to be something that you nerd out on and you look at and you look at a pretty picture and you say, oh, that's beautiful and you move on with your life. This is meant to be something that is transformative according to the Bible. Many people want to change their life by technique. And there's a place for technique in some things like weightlifting, right? You have good technique. But when you're trying to change your character and actually change your life or drop bad habits, you, you need more than a technique, right? You need more than like meditation or, or breathing practices or those sorts of things. You really do. What the Bible says over and over is, I'm not going to give you a technique. I'm going to give you truth. And if you take this truth and you screw it into your life, it'll start to change you. And what the Bible says about this truth, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, is that this truth has explosive power that will change you. You say, what do you mean? Well, here's how Peter said it. Peter in 2 Peter 3 said, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, what do we do? We look for new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things. Then we look for what things? Seeing that you're looking for a new heaven and that you're looking for a new earth, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Now, what is he saying? He's saying this is a high leverage truth. This is a truth with a long handle on it that will give you an extreme amount of leverage to be able to pry some things out of your life. You will, based on this truth, be able to be found in him having peace, right? Blameless, without spot. I would put it this way. This can produce in you a calm holiness. This can produce a peace in, a, in an unblemished soul or a spotlessness, a calm holiness can be about you because of this truth. If you will look for this, set your eyes on this, set your heart on this, set your affection on this, then this will begin to change you. You say, what do you mean? Prove it. Think about it. How do you pry loose your fear of missing out? Because some of you run through life frantic, convinced that you have to experience everything you possibly can right now because like Neil deGrasse Tyson, you, this is all there is. I got one go around. How do you pry that loose and start to calm down? Well, if you believe the truth, if that truth is screwed into your life, that this is not all there is, this is a vapor, this is, this is a, a sliver, a sliver of a sliver of a sliver of what will be that eternity awaits, and all of this awaits me, that I get to upgrade everything, all things new, then you're a bit more calm. How, how do you probably lose your lust for the things of this world. Some of you, you want to have, 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 have. And your generosity is crippled because of it. You spend all of your money, not all of your money, but a good, good chunk of it, more than you should, on you and you and you and on toys and toys and toys and stuff and stuff and stuff. And while it feels good to make that purchase and you like it for a day, a week, a month maybe, it wears off. And then you're left with a bunch of stuff. How do you pry loose your desire to have all that stuff? Well, 
if you understand that there's stuff that awaits me that's way better, I can be a bit more content today, right? If I come over to your house today for lunch and you got meatloaf as an appetizer, but you tell me filet mignon's coming out the oven in five minutes, I ain't eating meatloaf. No offense to your grandma's meatloaf recipe, okay? I'm not doing it. If filet's coming, meatloaf is not touching my palate, right? If you really believe, if this truth is screwed into your heart, that filet is coming soon, then you're not going to be so enamored by what this life has to offer, which is just meatloaf, right? You get that? This truth is transformative. This can change you from the inside out. How do you become less cynical and more hopeful and help us? We need hopefulness in our culture and less cynicism. (laughs) How do you do that? Well, if this life is all there is, and this is what you're going to experience, and you're, you're surveying the landscape, you know, we ain't doing so hot in a lot of areas, right? And it does make you cynical, and it does make you angry, and, and if this is all there is, then okay, be depressed, be cynical. But if you believe this, that this is coming, and God has these things in store for us, all things are made new, and there's a new Jerusalem that looks like this, and we'll have a new body, then man, you can be hopeful. You can understand that you're not living for now, but you're living for something else. And I could go on and on and on to prove to you this point, that when you screw this truth into your life, it will begin to change you. And we all, we all know this deep down, because what you believe about the future determines how you live today. I do on Wednesday night, my wife and I get to, to lead a, a young couples group. And because we have young couples, there's always somebody having a baby or pregnant, like literally all the time. We just, in our group, uh, one of the couples had a baby about 10 days ago. There are a couple moms that are pregnant right now, and we're praying for healthy mamas and healthy babies. And here's what I've learned about when you find out you're expecting. Like, what do you expect when you're expecting? Well, here's what to expect, especially if it's your first. When you believe firmly that a baby is in your future, you start to think and act different today. You do. And you know I'm right. You start to worry about money a little bit more. That's human. You look and say, "Uh, I don't know if the compact car is going to fit us anymore. Maybe we need to get something that's a sedan that's a little bigger that will fit the baby's car seat just right. And you start to make those purchases and moves, right? You start to do appointments and make appointments with doctors and have conversations. You start to notice stuff that you never noticed before. All the strollers and the bassinets and the cribs, they were always at the yard sales, but you were focused on the tackle box and the lures and the fishing poles, right? But now that a baby's on the way, oh, all of a sudden you notice that. You see the strollers and the cribs, right? And then you start to do stuff. You start to paint that room. You start to plan the gender reveal party. You, what you believe about what's coming eight months from now, six months from now, five months from now, what you believe about that changes how you live today. It does. And I would argue that if there are a bunch of Christians who look and act, behave, talk just like the world, then you may not believe something about your future. It may be a truth that has not yet been screwed into your life. And the Bible would say this is more than information. This is more than interesting. 
This is more than something for you to speculate about and, and ask, will I be able to be my own elevator? It's more than that. It's for you to understand that this truth can change you. The, the Puritans called it this. The Puritans called it the, ex, the expulsive power of a new affection. That when you get a new affection, it expels out old, weaker affections. When I started to, to notice my wife and then date my wife, right? I had interest in and I enjoyed time with my buddies. But all of a sudden, there was this new affection by the name of Maggie that came into my life. And what you know, at time with the fellas just wasn't that appealing anymore. Oh, sure, we'd laugh or we would, we'd play ball or we would go do something fun, but that no longer had near the luster that it used to have. Why? Because my mind's on Maggie and Maggie's on my mind, right? I'm thinking about her. There is a new affection that has expelled out some older, weaker affections, and the bromances just don't matter as much anymore. This is what, this is what the Bible says. When you set your affection on things above, as Paul would say in Colossians, when you set your affection there, when this begins to grip you, when you begin to think about what a new heaven and a new earth would be like, when you begin to thank God that he has given you the promise of a new heaven and a new earth and a new body, when that begins to become a part of who you are, it begins to change you, to change you. So take these verses and think about them, meditate on them, Try to understand them. There's a new capital city. It also says, and each point will be quicker, I promise. Heaven is made for a new community. I'll get back to the verses I skip in just a moment, but verse 24. The nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. So I'm glad it says this, because you would assume that you are allowed entrance, like if you're saved, but it would be an assumption, but it explicitly tells you, you get to come, right? This is not like new heaven, new earth, but here's my little special city that you can't be a part of, right? This, this is, it's not like the He-Man Woman Haters Club where only certain people are allowed. You get, you get entrance to this and they bring their glory and honor into it and the gates of it, they shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. So the gate, 24 seven, wide open, access. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. I don't know if you realize it, but I wrote it down. We sang this this morning in our opening song, uh, Psalm 150. It's a rendition of, of Psalm 150 that we sang praising the Lord. And we sang the, the lyric, let every nation bring its honors to the king. What were we singing? We were singing this. What do we mean, let every nation bring its honors to the king? I'm going to confess, I don't know for sure. These are a few verses that people really debate. And I could give you a dozen different uh, angles on what people think these verses exactly mean. But I'll tell you what I think they mean. And I could be wrong. But I think it means, first of all, that you're not going to lose your ethnicity when you have a new body, which should be encouraging to most people. That a new body, well, what, what do you mean? Will I look like me? Yes. Not completely, but yes. Well, will I... Will I what, what does that mean? Do I lose my ethnicity? No. The nations. Earlier in Revelation, we saw the kindreds and the tribes and the tongues. But there seems to be lines of demarcation that can still uh, put people in nations or pockets or, or languages or those sorts of things. You said there won't be like one heavenly language and no one speaks anything else? I don't think so. I think there's lots of them. 
Will I know them all? No, you're going to have to learn them, but you've got a long time. So maybe your new body will be easier for you to compute them. I, I don't know how that works. But the, the nations get to bring the glory and the honor of the kings and the nations into heaven. Best I can tell, that means that the cultures are bringing the best of their culture as gifts to somehow be brought into heaven, and God will use them somehow. Like we'll see in chapter 22 that we're going to have jobs and we're going to serve, and it's not just a giant sing-along in the sky all day long, and, and somehow we'll use these. I don't know if that means that the Germans are going to bring their engineering, and the Americans are going to bring their innovation, and the Swedish are going to bring their Ikea furniture with better directions, though. Like, I don't know how all that goes, but we're going to bring the best that we have to say, I want to use this, right? And maybe even like the idiosyncrasies of the cultures will be there, where if you meet someone who is Japanese, that you'd still be able to recognize them as Japanese, and, and they'll bow when they meet you. And if you meet someone who's Italian, they're going to use all their hands, you know? They're going to meet you and kiss you on the cheeks and, and talk and, and be very animated. Like, that's still going to be a thing. You don't lose that stuff. But instead, we not lose it, we use it. And we use it to glorify and to honor God. You say, how exactly will I do that? I don't know. But it excites me to think about. And the next verse says this. There shall be in no wise shall enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. A new community. Revelation has said this multiple times already. It's reiterating it. That unwholesome lifestyles that oppose the truth of God are totally denied entrance into this new order. It's just God and his people. They're to enjoy each other. They're even to bring the best of what we have to offer. I love how Anthony Hokima thinks about this. And I don't know that I would say everything he speculates here is true by any stretch of the imagination. But I like the wavelength that he's on. He says, in this new heaven and new earth, will there be better Beethovens on the new earth? Will we see better Rembrandts or Raphaels? Will people be painting and we get to enjoy their gifts? Will we read better poetry or better drama or better prose? Will scientists continue to advance in technological achievements? Never thought about that one, right? I don't know. Will architects continue to build imposing and impressive structures? I would say, yeah. Will there be enticing new adventures and space travel? He's, what is he doing? He's trying to root you back into something that is physical, something that is real, something that is beautiful, not just float around in the sky, which is exactly what Revelation says. And there we get to do it with each other. So if your granddaddy or your mamma or your husband or your child knew the Lord and they have preceded you in death, you get to enjoy that community together. You get to be with them. And one of the most famous sermons on heaven ever preached called Heaven is a World of Love by Jonathan Edwards. Many, many years ago. You can look it up and read the sermon if you want. It's readily available. Edwards does his best to describe what is being portrayed here in Revelation. 
that there is, there's nothing bad, but there's only good, and we get to enjoy a new community. And here's what Edward says. He says, there are none but lovely objects in heaven. Nothing odious, nor unlovely. No polluted person or thing is to be seen there. Nothing wicked or unholy. No evil angels will infest heaven as they do this world. No hypocrites, no people that pretend to be saints. That blessed world will be perfectly bright, without any darkness, perfectly fair, without any spot. No string will vibrate out of tune. No defect shall ever enter there, but every being and everything shall conspire to promote love and the full enjoyment of love. What's he, he's trying to get at the, the idea that there's a new community in this heaven. And then lastly, and more to come on this in chapter 22 because we get the idea that we get to see him face to face. So more to come, but for now we'll leave it here. There's a new communion. Verse 22, I saw no temple therein, which is a striking phrase. If you know anything about Jerusalem historically, it was known for the temple. That was the centerpiece of the city. Even to this day, when you see a picture of Jerusalem, you are still going to see a picture of Temple Mount with the Muslim mosque, the Dome of the Rock on Temple Mount. It's still known for that Temple Mount and being a place of worship. What about the new Jerusalem? Will it have a temple? Maybe like Solomon's temple or Herod's temple, a temple? Nope, no temple. Why? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, they are the temple of it. The temple was the place where you went to commune with God, to be in the presence of God. And God says, I got one better. I will upgrade this. I will be there. Verse 23, and the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Here is the centerpiece of the new Jerusalem. The temple that is not a temple like you would think, but is God. This is what everything revolves around. This is where everything shines from. This to be in his presence. I worked uh, at Sears through college. Many of you know this, but it was my primary job through college. I had a bunch. But the one that was very consistent over the course of five or six years that, um, that I was my go-to revenue stream was selling appliances uh, on commission at Sears. And I would oftentimes have people coming in looking for a new washing machine. And sometimes they just wanted the new style or their old one actually broke or something. But oftentimes people would come in and they would say something like this. They would say like, my washing machine has a devil in it. It is trying to escape my house or it's trying to like break my house in half. Like it is the loudest, craziest thing that I could, that I could ever imagine. I can't take it anymore. And I would ask them like, does your washing machine, is it, loud and crazy all the time, not all the time, most of the time. Okay. Well, here's what's happening. You have, you have a washing machine where you open the top of it, right? Yeah. And in the middle is like this, this tower, this white tower with circles around it, right? Yeah. That's the agitator. That machine is designed to where it's going to wash your clothes and then it's going to go into the spin cycle where it spins super, super fast, like 600 RPMs or something. And it's trying to get all the water out of your clothes. And the, the clothes are meant to be neatly around the center. And if it does that, it'll go really well. But if things get out of position and they get away from the center, or they get bunched over here in a corner or something, if, they, if they're not centered anymore, then the whole thing gets off kilter, right? 
That drum has some wiggle room, but now it's spinning and that drum is no longer on center. So it beats against the side of the washing machine and the washing machine beats against the side of the dryer and the dryer beats against the side of your house and you think you have a demon in it. Like that's how this goes. And sometimes it's fixable and sometimes it's not, but it would, it would be a very clear lesson for them that if you're not centered on what's meant to be the center, then destruction happens, right? And from cover to cover, the Bible presents this idea to humanity. That number one, he is the center. And number two, if you do not center on him, destruction happens. You start to clank around life in a way that is not cohesive or beautiful or helpful or healthy. And for some of you, this would make a lot of sense of like the mesh you've made of certain parts of your life. Where you're like, I just wasn't centered on, on Jesus. Yeah, that's what happens. So that is, first of all, a great lesson for today, center on him, right? But what this says is that in that day, everything will center on him. Like there won't be an option. If you wanted to not center your life on him, you couldn't if you tried. You're not going to want to try, but you couldn't if you tried. There will be at the center of everything, not a city, a person. When I get home to my house after traveling, I do not hug the couch or kiss the carpet. I hug and kiss my wife and my children, right? As beautiful as the new Jerusalem is, you're not gonna hug pearls or kiss jewels. You're gonna be there for the person. All that stuff will be amazing, but the centerpiece will be God. And here's the lesson, I'm done. If that's what your future holds, then live that way today. You can get to know Jesus better today. You can never get to know anything better than Jesus. Jesus is the best, but you can get to know him better today. Don't wait for that day to enjoy communion, to enjoy the presence, to enjoy what is the centerpiece. Enjoy the centerpiece now. Live for him now. Commune with him now. Love him now. And see if it doesn't change you.